Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our communities and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? And my guest today is Dr. Michael Macmillan, an artist, author, playwright and curator. His plays and performance pieces include productions by the Royal Court Theatre, Channel 4 and BBC Radio 4 Drama. He's a visiting professor of creative writing at the University of the Arts London and an associate lecturer teaching cultural and historical studies at the London College of Fashion. Michael was born to immigrant parents from St Vincent and the Grenadines and his work explores family, identity and generation in a migrant context. His curation and installation of a 1970s West Indian front room at the Jeffrey Museum had more than 35,000 visitors and has since become a permanent exhibition at the now Museum of the Home. A new iteration of this 1970s interior was recently included at Tate Britain's landmark exhibition, Life Between Islands, exploring Caribbean British art over four generations. Amongst the five-star reviews, The Guardian described the exhibition as a mind-altering portrait of British Caribbean life through art. Hello, Michael, and welcome. Thank you for coming. So, Michael, having just mentioned just mentions the um, exhibition Life Between Islands, perhaps we could follow on from there if, if you could tell us a little bit more about that exhibition. And I'm interested in whether you agree it was mind-altering and who for? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, so my little contribution to that, uh, to Life Between Islands, was to create a room, an installation, that I now call the front room. And I call it that not beyond the kind of West Indian front room because most people can relate to it. It's this—it's the sacred room in the home, the special room, the room that you're not really allowed, the children are not allowed into. It's the room that you entertain guests in. Um, and that from the 70s, I suppose, was, you know, had wallpaper and carpet that um, never matched. You're probably young enough, like me, to remember the style and aesthetics of this room. It was often seen as kitsch, um, and it had the best displays of stuff. And uh, I, I suppose in the context of the exhibition, why it was the Guardian might have said it was mind-altering was that room created a portal into growing up for, during the 70s, firstly for African-Caribbean communities and Black British communities, but also migrant communities, um, whether that be Southeast Asian, whoever, particularly also working class, people from working class backgrounds. Um, during the course of the three months, I would go into the exhibition and I would see people in the room. And, you know, it was a diverse selection of people who would say, we had one of them, we had one of them. This brings back memories. 
People would be sitting on the sofa in the installation. They didn't want to move. They felt like they were at home. So that's all part of the kind of immersive emotional experience that I think the Guardian's kind of referring to. They were also wonderful works. There were 45 artists, I should add, in this um, exhibition. So it's a landmark, was a landmark exhibition. Um, you know, I think visitors took maybe two to three hours to get around it, really, if you really kind of wow. checked out the work. Um, yeah, and yeah, artists, yeah. Apart from which, artists of my generation, like Sonia Boyce, um, Tam Joseph, Isaac Julian, I mean, the list goes on. Um, you know, older artists like Charlie Phillips, Neil Kinlock, and so forth. Just amazing work. And it was an honor to be part of the show. Um, but yeah, that's be the front room is my most popular artwork. It, uh, it, people don't leave me alone with it, really. I keep being asked to put things <laughs> around it. You know. I'm proud. <laughs> I, I do feel proud. And I am humbled when it has this effect on people. You know, it, it takes them back. It's extraordinarily powerful. And for me, I really thought, you know, it, this almost the simplicity and the brilliance of it, yeah. if you like. So that if you go back to, I think, 2005, when it was first installed at the Jeffrey Museum. Yeah. You basically found a way of removing all of the deep social barriers because you simply said, come in. But it yes. was interesting that you could say come in because you had reinstalled the front room in a safe space and typically yeah. in a white setting of a museum. Yeah. But yeah. what's brilliant about that was it showed that people were perhaps curious. It's like getting to know your neighbour for the first time. Exactly. So something happened at the Jeffrey Museum when we did it initially and so you're right. It's quite simple. You're using objects, really, to tell a story. And there were loads of uh, kind of, you know, white English, British people, working class people who would come in and say, oh, we that looks like um, my friend's neighbor. That thing, they had one of them or we had one of them. We had that we had that plastic pineapple ice bucket. Um, and oh, I saw I saw a lot of that crochet in my my my. Uh, my, my neighbors next door. So it did um, ignite kind of curiosity in people about how other people live, but also how reflected upon how they lived as well. And then with these things, if you think about, you know, for instance, the radiogram, and that's about music, you're, you're going back and thinking about how was that music played? What kind of music did people play? Where did they play it? These were the house parties. You'd have the neighbors come in, you know, because there's noise being made. And so, okay, might as well invite the neighbors, bring them in, make them inclusive, share a bit of food. And it's that atmosphere that um, Steve McQueen was able to capture in his film as part of Small Axe, the Lover's Rock film, where, you know, the furniture's being moved out, the radiogram's there, there's food being cooked in the kitchen. People are going to come later on to dance. And this house party is going to go on until the early hours of the morning. So that one object, the radiogram, signifies all of those kind of experiences of music that people had. And, and that's what I love about 
the project in that you can use different objects to tell so many different kind of stories. The other significant thing is that it's a woman's room, really. I mean, my dad may have used it, the men may use it, but it's the woman who controls, uh, she dresses it, she decorates, she may, yeah, well, she'll instruct the man to how to decorate, but she dresses it and she controls how you behave in there. There's no vulgar behavior, you know. Um, so I found that interesting. It was my mother's room, really. My mother controlled yeah, how you yeah. behave in there. Uh, because yeah, I think yeah. when guests come come into the home, it's women who get judged about you know the cleanliness and the um, the order and tidiness of the home, and you could say yeah that's patriarchal, but also it it reflects something about gender in the home as well. What's going on in the home and domestic practice and so forth. Yeah, yeah, um, because the front room is so often a statement of aspiration, um, mm -hmm. respectability. Um, exactly. And so, you know, we would have been a typical single parent working class family, but we shared those hideous fish ornaments. Yes. <laughs> the glass exactly. ones. <laughs> exactly. We shared the wallpaper. We shared Jim Reeves, but we chucked some Johnny Cash in as well. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> but the rules applied um, in yes. terms of um, a no a no go zone. So I wondered, as a child, from your point of view, what that space was like for you in terms of challenge and conformity. How challenging were you? Well, I mean, it's a good question, Paula, because growing up, I was a bit ambivalent about the room. On one level, I thought the aesthetics were quite kitsch, you know. Um, and, it, it, you know, what does kitsch mean? Kitsch means it has no taste. It's a bit vulgar. But then if you re-look at kitsch, kitsch, kitsch is also about kind of reassurance things. It's about that nice picture of flowers and so forth, you know. And so there's a way we can re-look at kitsch. But I used to go into the front room uh, to, oh, and my parents wouldn't allow me in because I was a good boy. I would leave it how, as I found it. So I was allowed. To, oh, very good. Um, and I used to look through photo albums and look through photos of, of portraits of family and relatives that look like me looking for resemblances. Um, I also loved playing the music on the radiogram. <coughs> so apart from Jim Reeves and Johnny Cash, there was Elvis Presley. There was Calypsonians like Mighty Sparrow. Um, uh, Connie Francis, the Beatles, even. So my parents had a quite eclectic musical taste, and they had their seven inches vinyl records, and I used to play them and listen to the music. Um, and then on a on a Saturday night before I was allowed to go out and rave and dance, I used to listen to on Capital Radio, uh, Greg Edwards' Soul Spectrum show which was from eight o'clock. And then later on at night, they had a reggae show with David Rodigan. And that was my kind of Saturday night entertainment, as it were, with music. So I was fascinated, you know, I, I used to go into the front room quite a lot, uh, in a sense, really. Um, and, and you could have a space, no one else would come in. You know, no one else were there. But the other thing that was fascinating is when the guests came round. And you'd be invited in by your parents to meet someone that you didn't know but knew you. 
and they would say, oh, look how big they've got. How well you're doing at school. And your mom's right there, and you better just say, okay, I'm doing well. I'm, it's School's okay. School's okay. And then, and then they'd start chatting about with adult talk and big people chat. And then uh, I'd overhear, oh, some some gossip, you know, about, oh, I don't know why she married him. And I think, oh, really? And then my, I re- my mom realizes that I'm still in the room and she's saying, don't you have any homework to do? But it's not a question. It's not a question. It's yeah. an instruction to come out, to leave now. You're no longer required in the room. It's a really, cl- it's a really clear code, isn't it? Homework. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but it, it's interesting because, um, of course, I think you really were a good boy, as you put it, because I think by the age of 16, you had a literary agent. So you, school and homework. This what happened to me, Paula. That event changed my life. So at 15, I was 15 in 1976, you know, you had the upright riots at the Notting Hill Carnival. I went, That was my first carnival I ever went to. So at that age, you know, it's, you're working out as a teenager who you are. And at school, my English teacher kind of noticed this, and he introduced me to a lot of black literature. And he said, Michael, there's an essay competition in the West Indian world, which was a kind of forerunner before the Voice newspaper, black newspaper. So I entered the, I entered the essay competition, and the prize was to go for three weeks to Nigeria, where they held the FESTAC, the Second World Festival of Black Arts and Culture. This was a massive festival. Um, even by those standards of the 1970s, the Nigerian government had spent the petrol dollars and they were proud and they were showing off to the world that Nigeria was a premier African nation arriving now. Um, so they had 2,000 African-American artists, 250 art, black artists from this country alone. That's the scale wow. of it. You know, everybody from uh, wow. Stevie Wonder... Mira Makiba, Bob Marley were there. That's just the music, much less the wow. artists, film, theater, literature, everything. I was 15, never, never wow. left Hackney, never had a passport, never traveled on a plane. So you can imagine at that impressionable age, it, uh, it affected me. I was infected from that age. And I came back and felt and realized I could do anything I wanted. And so I then wrote my first play the following year, sent it to the Royal Court Theatre, and it was produced as part of the Young Writers Festival. So by 16, I was still at school, but now I was considered a professional writer. And that's how I was given an agent. Mm. Uh, you know, and I had features in yeah. The Guardian, The Times, The Telegraph. I was a bit of a star. But I never let it go to my head because I realized, you know, with peer, coming from Caribbean background, education, 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 I had to do still, you know, do well at school educationally. Um, and, you know, my parents never had money. So the only thing that I could achieve social mobility is through education. So even though I, I was at school and I was continuing now seeing myself as a playwright, and continuing to write, um, 
I did well educationally, you know. I um, and eventually went to university, went to Sussex University, where I was writing theatre. But that, from that moment of sixteen, I knew what I wanted to do, which was to be a writer. Mm. And as they say, yeah. the cliche goes: the rest is history. I've continued. I've not stopped. I've that's been my practice. Yeah. My parents were a bit disappointed, coming from a working class background. They felt, well, oh, you know, get a proper job. But I, I don't know. I was really determined. Yeah. So my parents, I think that's very important in thinking about artists and art is that, you know, and I experience it now in teaching. You know, I noticed that a lot of students who come from middle class backgrounds, um, it's not always. Sometimes they, ha they have a creative desire to, you know, to go into the creative arts. Uh, but their parents feel, you should become a doctor or an accountant or a lawyer. And I think, mm, that's a difficult one to, to, to ple please in your parents, in a sense, particularly as students have to pay for, have to pay for higher education now. But I will say to students that please keep that light burning in your creative practice. Keep it going because you'll come back to it eventually, you know? Um, if mm. you have that desire, if you have it in you, that creative interest, it'll never go away. It will never go away. It will always be there, even if you come and become a, lo a, do a doctor or a lawyer. And look at the example of John Jonathan Miller. Jonathan mm. Miller was trained as a medical doctor, became, but became a theatre director. Mm. And that's what he's known yeah. for. He's not really known as a doctor. He's known as a theatre director. Mm. It's like it's like everything. It seems these days, um, it's so unnecessary to be so polarizing all of the time. Arts versus science, mm. for example, you know, That's and right. uh, rich and poor, black and white. You know, it, it's all so absurd because everything is about rich collaboration and rich exchange. Um, yes. And you must find, as an educator, perhaps you find an increasingly difficult struggle in terms of protecting and defending the arts because the government their cuts are super controversial around 50 percent affecting the arts and education and it's really yeah. devaluing the arts because they are saying oh unless this converts into a high yeah. paid business leader type salary uh, it's not worth having um, so how are you kind of negotiating that struggle as an educator well, as, a, an as an educator, my, I feel my role basically is to inspire young students to be critical, to question, to not accept the status quo, to challenge the status quo. Otherwise, what are you doing? What, how are you contributing to the development of society? And, you know, difference is crucial, but we have a fear of difference. We have a fear of something that's different from what we kind of... And so you're really trying to empower students and young people to embrace that. And that comes from their own identities. And I will tell students quite bluntly, listen, when I, was, when I did my first degree, I didn't pay for it. So I don't think you should have to pay for it because education is not a privilege. It's a right. It's your right to be educated. But unfortunately, education has become a privilege now. And you do notice in higher education, and I'm going to say a form of cultural apartheid. 
And so when I went to university, we had a few people, students who came from black and white from working class backgrounds. That's become increasingly difficult now. And for a lot of students, you know, they're thinking, okay, why am I going to go to university? I finished my degree and then I'm lumbered with this debt for the rest of my life. Um, and I think socially that really kind of puts off a lot of other people who, who would otherwise be entitled, I think, to benefit from higher education. The other thing, there's this equation that you get a degree equals a job in the humanities. It doesn't. Education is about your development as a person, not about a job. Whatever you're going to do later on is really up to you. But, it, you know, the degree does not equal a job. There's no job waiting for you at the end of the degree, unless possibly you're doing science. But even that is difficult. I also think we face the challenge now that in schools, the arts, the arts are being removed. Um, but then each government always fears artists because artists are a reflection back on society. We, we reflect back onto society and we raise questions and we're subversive and we're transgressive. You know, writers around the world are imprisoned, are killed. Artists are killed for what they say. So within this country, there has always been a kind of tension between the arts, the artists, and what they're going to say, and they're going to challenge the status quo. And often, whatever government, it doesn't matter what persuasion government it is, are threatened by that. So I think there's a kind of hidden agenda here, uh, in a way, of removing the arts from, 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 from schools, um, you know, because you're told with the present government that within the national curriculum, anything that's seen as anti-capitalist, <laughs> what does that mean? Anti-capitalist. Well, like, actually, you might as well remove the whole curriculum. <laughs> you might as well remove the whole curriculum if it's going to be anti-capitalist. Yeah. Please. Yeah. A, col a colonially led curriculum. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> shut, shut all the schools down. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and so young people, children and young people are missing out. They're missing out. Because one of the key areas, and I think it's, I, I teach history as well, is history. We're in a time now where history is so important to understand politically the dark times we're going in now is not new. We've been here before, okay? And But unless you're in connecting with history, you won't understand, see the patterns. It's not that ha history necessarily repeats itself, but there are patterns. We can see patterns. And, you know, there are some crucial issues here in the 21st century that a younger generation are have to, going to have to deal with. One of them is cl the climate crisis. We are already in the, it's not going to happen, it's already here. The climate, if you go around the world, you know, I was in the Caribbean a few weeks ago, and the thing that they fear there is the more increased power of hurricanes, the destructive power, which are getting worse annually, okay? Um, we're going to find lots of people who lives in areas which are threatened by rising sea levels. They're going to have to move. They're going to become refugees. So on a human level, we have to come to terms with the fact of movement of humans over the next hundred years, this century, you know, and, and sending people to Rwanda has not addressed the issue. <laughs> There's not no, addressed I mean, the issue. 
No, it, it, it's it's endlessly depressing that choices and policies, you know, they still choose cruelty um, in yeah. effect because the sooner everyone understands that we, in effect, are all migrants through climate yeah. change alone, climate change impact alone, and to start understanding from a humane perspective yeah. what that means for everybody yeah. would hopefully remove a lot of cruelty and yes. in terms of how people are viewed. Yes. Um, there are so many prejudices, aren't there? I mean, so, for example, when we were just talking about the arts curriculum at schools being slashed, yeah. being removed, and I think for very sinister purposes. Yeah. And yet, actually, the Arts Council has published that the arts contribute $8.5 billion yes. to the UK economy. Right. It's, a, it's an outright prejudice. That's right. um, and when you talk about um, history, yeah. how bizarre that black history is optional. It It's yeah. the same as however worthwhile campaigns can be. Yeah. Black History Month is as limited as Women's Hour. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but as a woman, an hour's not going to cut it, and I'm sure a month isn't going to cut it for the black no. community. No. Well, you know, for me, my I, I have an issue with Black History Month. I understand the principle, and it's important. But in the long run, the wider picture is that we are, it's all part, we're all part of history. We are all interconnected in terms of history. You know, there was a very famous uh, cultural theorist from Jamaica, Stuart Hall, who passed away. He said, once said, we are here because you were there. We are here because you were there. We are here, you know, my parents' generation who came, the, what's called, the, you know, the, the post-war Windrush generation. We're here because Britain had a colonial relationship in the Caribbean, in India, in Africa. That's why we're here, right? My parents' generation saw themselves as British citizens. They saw themselves, they knew more about England than the English. They grew up with a colonial education, you know, they read poetry from Wordsworth to Yeats, okay? Um, they did not them see themselves as immigrants. They were coming here to help the mother country, you know, rebuild after the destruction of the Second World War. You know? They, were, they saw themselves as Commonwealth citizens coming here. That's really important to understand, you know, that, that, that connection. And that connection is not new because there's been a black presence in this country for at least 500 years. Some people will say we go back to the Romans. So this interconnection has always been there. Um, and that's why history is so in, important to understand that. Yes? To understand yeah, the patterns yeah. of history. To understand that what is happening now is not new. As I say, we've been here before. If we think about, you know, the whole Black Lives Matter movement that came after, um, well, the Black Lives movement is always there, but the way that the world has reacted to the killing, the police killing of George Floyd, we can go back to the 60s and the killing of Emmett Till in America. The same similar global reaction 
to another human being being brutalized like that. So, you know, th this is why history is important to understand that. Um, and what is then, as an individual, what is your position in relation to that history? How, where were you in that position? What's your, what is your role? Because, you know, we, we, we have ancestors. And I think within the black communities, ancestors are really important. Um, remembering them, remembering their struggles. You know, both my parents are gone now. But that's why the front room is still very important, uh, because in a way we are continuing uh, that those traditions. And the the thing about art, the question of can art save us? Yes, it can, because you mentioned the Arts Council talking about eight billion. Well, what about the well-being that arts gives? That's countless. You can't. How can you measure that in terms of human self-care and human well-being? Um, during the pandemic, many people have many people have been affected by mental health. One of the things that's helped them is art, is the kind of creative expression. It's very it's very difficult to measure that. Um, so you know you can't you can't erase you can't erase art. It's going to be there, and you're going to find children and young people are going to express themselves creatively, regardless of what's on the curriculum. This is a human form of expression that's been here thousands of years. Yeah? So you can't kill art. It's impossible. You can't kill it. You can't kill it. But, it, but obviously, without it being on the curriculum, without it, lack of more support, it makes it much more difficult. And it makes it much more difficult for young people thinking as a kind of pathway for developing maybe a career or a practice. But I'm always encouraging young people to just follow their, follow their aspirations, follow their dreams. Yeah, and uh, that emphasis on uh, openness, being able to ask questions, which the arts lets you explore, hence my interest in the role of curiosity and curiosity yes. not being closed down. You know, we were talking about um, how limiting it is, obviously, to remove arts from the curriculum, That how strange yeah. it is that black history is optional um, and how yeah. campaigns uh, can be useful but limiting. So we, we mentioned uh, Black History Month or Women's Hour, for example, yeah. Um, yeah. when things should just yeah. be fully integrated. Um, yeah. I, I wondered what kinds of interventions you'd be interested in seeing to help change that, whether it's from the history or the arts point of view in education. Well, I mean, I think we've, we, we're, what's, there's, there's a particular event that's happened in America recently that people may think it may not affect us here, but it has implications, which is the anti-abortion uh, law in America, yeah? The removal yeah. of a Road and Wade, yes? Yeah. Now, that is really quite serious. That is really quite serious because what's been said here is that women do not have any control over their bodies. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a serious issue because what it means, the implications are, is that it then gives oxygen for other people around the world to say, well, actually, yes, let's remove abortion. Not only that, let's introduce other kind of patriarchal kind of laws, which, you know, kind of pulls back all the achievements over the past 50, 60 years 
of women's independence. Yeah. Um, you can see this connection now also around gender in terms of, you know, uh, we, we, there are lots of countries where um, homosexuality is illegal. Mm. Uh, it just gives oxygen to those kind of regressive, conservative kind of policies. Yeah. And we have to be very careful that, you know, so within education, for instance, that certain we have to protect certain rights. Um, and so as an intervention, I would want to do a session with young people around the history of abortion laws um, mm. and how abortion, the history of abortion. One mm. of the significant things I tell students that during the 60s, right, the arrival of the contraceptive pill transformed women's lives. Yeah. Trans because before that women were afraid to get pregnant. But now women with the pill could now enjoy sex and have pleasure. That's really important. Mm. That's 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 really important in terms of and this is important for young women as well, particularly in the digital age where you hear lots of stories of you know young girls being affected by trying to look perfect on social mm. media. Um we should do be doing some work around that, yeah. around how young girls and young people are affected by social media. We need, and that's you could look at that within the context of um, sexual sexual um, discrimination laws, um, abortion laws, and so forth. Yeah. I would love to do a workshop on that with young people. Yeah, and it you know, will. Which yeah, we need those rights to be protected. Yeah, yeah, because it's such a clear. Uh, challenge around um, equality again. You know, it's so regressive, and yeah. I think um, your your work, waiting for myself to appear, picks up on on some of this as well in terms yeah. of you know women, their bodies, how their bodies are used, and who makes those decisions. I yeah. wondered if you might like to outline some of that for listeners who may not know about that piece of work you've produced. Okay. Okay, so Waiting for Myself to Appear uh, is a film and that's actually at the Museum of the Home now. It's a free film, a free screen installation. I mean, it's a film of a performance piece that I wrote and directed, and it's a one-woman show. And it's two characters. A woman who were a black woman who works in a, a museum, a fictional museum at the moment, discovers in the archive that uh, a black nurse escorted a young white woman to England. And this white woman became the wife of the chaplain at the um, the Jeffrey Arms House during the late 19th century. So that's historical fact. There was a black nurse who did that. But I then did some research and find out, well, what kind of nurse was she? Um, because she came, they, they came from Jamaica. And we discovered that black women at that time were not nurses in the sense of helping sick people. They were actually wet nurses. So this black nurse who escorted this young white girl from Jamaica, Spanish John Jamaica, was her wet nurse, which meant that that white young, young white child was weaned on the black woman's breast milk. Um, now, this is an important history to understand, because mm. during the 19th century, breastfeeding was considered disgusting. You know, yeah. <laughs> which may be very strange to see now, to hear mm. and understand now. So a lot of middle-class women, basically, uh, their children were weaned by wet nurses. And they're not just black, but also white women as well. 
But it tells us something about how women's bodies have been exploited, particularly black women's voices, through colonialism. And there's a direct connection here between, the for me, the NHS and the way that uh, the NHS in the post-war era was really kind of built and helped with the assistance of Caribbean women who were nurses. Uh, and they experienced a lot of racism because, you know, as midwives, for instance, they helped give birth to a lot of white babies, even though the white patients said, don't touch me. Yeah. Um, Wow. And then we find that during the pandemic, we find that a lot of people who died and felt and frontline workers who had to go into work were people of color. Mm. And this connects to Brexit because a lot of these people were immigrants. And, yeah. and so they're helping us to, to live and survive and taking care of us. But on the other side of it, they're being told that they're illegal and they shouldn't be here. Yeah. Um, it's Windrush all over again. It's Windrush all over again. So um, the film taps into that history, but also connects it with now, with what is going on now in terms of black women's bodies. Um, but hopefully also, I, I hope that people can connect with it on a human level, you know, um, in terms of women, in terms of their independence. Uh, so it's a very it's a short film. It's only about twenty minutes, um, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping people can see it at the Museum mm. of the Home. And whilst we're uh, talking about women in particular, I, I'm interested yeah. in terms of your your own family, whether it was your your mom, grandparents, or sisters, w women closest to you. What you yeah. felt you witnessed in terms of the courage they had to find so that might, that may be your point of view as a child growing up, growing up or as an adult, but what kind of courage you've had to see them drum up to constantly stand up against discrimination? Yeah. Well, you know, that's a good question, Paula. I mean, I grew up, my mother was a very fierce, strong woman, you know, she held down two to three jobs you know, including a cleaning job, um, to ensure that we went, we didn't go without. You know, growing up, I didn't realize we were working class until because um, we, you know, we had everything really. We had, you know, we didn't want for anything really, in a sense. Mm -hmm. So I only realized later, oh, we're working class, we're poor. But that's also because of my mother. Um, I had a father as well, and he worked hard. But you know, it was my mother basically who was really strong, who had resilience who, you know, we had, I have three other siblings, um, two sisters, and I can see what they are now and what they do. One of them, you know, works in America. She runs her own kind of recruitment agency. Another one is a, a seed. She's a sister in a hospital. Mm. That sense of independence comes from my mother. Um, and then also it, my extended family, I always grew up with really strong women around me. Mm. Um, and I think that's kind of influenced me in tapping into the kind of feminine side of my own um, side as a man. Um, and also I grew up during the 70s and 80s when feminism was on the rise and black feminism was on the... So I was, in fact, I was affected by that. Mm. I was influenced by that. And also awareness from, my, from the beginning of my practice at 16 
you know. Mm. The director who directed most of my plays was gay. So I was always aware of sexuality from that early age. And I've come to an understanding that, you know, sexuality is a spectrum. It's not a binary. You know, it's not about being gay or not gay. Mm. It's a, it's, you, we all kind of explore in our own sexuality. And I always say, well, I'm straight, I think. Um, because sexuality is about exploration and discovery of who you are. Yeah. So from a young age, I've always had an openness about gender and sexuality. And I embrace that in my work, in my practice, in a sense. Have you had to be brave to embrace that in your practice? Because there are so many obvious stereotypes, aren't there? And especially if you were to consider uh, stereotyping around black masculinity as a male. Um, have you yeah. ever had to feel particularly courageous socially or artistically in order to be able to express your own vulnerabilities? I suppose so. I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, as a black man, you're always being reminded of that every single day. You're reminded of that every single day. And so from my own research, my own understanding, my own kind of, you know, exploration of, of that construction, often that, that construction of black masculinity has got nothing to do with us. It's, it's a colonial racist kind of conception. You know, black men are meant to be good at sports. They're, you know, hypersexual. Mm -hmm. um, they can run fast. Da, 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 da. All of those stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And you have to negotiate that on a daily basis. And mm -hmm. it's really got nothing to do with me as an individual. But we have to negotiate those tropes. Um, and so I've done work around, I've written some theatre around exploring that. And that allows me to kind of reconstruct a sense, what does it mean in terms of masculinity? One of the key areas you mentioned vulnerability, and it's not just for black men, but for men, period. We tend to, we are, we are, we are trained to be emotionally constipated. Mm. We don't know how to express ourselves emotionally. And that's a key. And part of expressing yourself emotionally is expressing your vulnerability. Fear, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I feel, you know, weak. That's a strength I consider to be able to do that. But in a patriarchal society, we're not taught that. We're taught that, you know, if as a man, to express vulnerability, to cry is a sign of weakness, is being a wimp. These are the struggles that young men and men, as my age, have to have to negotiate all the time. Um, so I'm always pushing that in my practice. Um to explore those kind of questions, to provide that space where men can feel safe, uh, feel safe with each other to express those emotions. Yeah. In a sense. Yeah. Um, that's an ongoing, that's, on, that's ongoing work. That's ongoing work. And it's interesting talking about fear and, and you mentioned uh, the, the film director, Steve McQueen earlier, um, yeah. because he yeah. talks he talks very interestingly about fear as well and, and how he makes fear his friend because he knows it's coming. Yes, exactly. Because the one of the only ways to deal with fear is to confront it. We have to confront our fears. So this question of, I've never really considered myself necessarily courageous as such other people may see that but i'm just going to do what i'm going to do and i'm going to say what i'm going to say in the work and so i do come from a background you know of community arts of doing stuff that's maybe considered radical or 
challenging the status quo, um, you know, the theater that I, I made in the past did was transgressive potentially, not only for white people, but for black people. Um, but that's what my role as an artist basically is to kind of go to places that other people may be afraid to go to kind of go to and embrace that. But in doing that, Paula, you have to face your own uh, personal demons. I did a residency years ago in the early 90s look, working with people affected and infected by HIV and AIDS. This was when a HIV AIDS was considered the gay plague, you know. Mm. Um, and we had to politicize it. We had to have courage in a sense. I didn't necessarily think I was being courageous, but looking back, it probably was transgressive. It was subversive, the work we did. Um, and I remember bringing over a group from America called Pomo Afro Homos, postmodern African-American homosexuals. <laughs> yeah. And they, and they performed... At, in, in Newcastle, where the residency was. Now, people might think, oh, why is Michael doing that? Is he gay? Well, actually, I don't care what you think I am, actually. Yeah. I don't yeah. really don't care. I really don't care. Um, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to do the work that raises those kind of questions. And it is about saving us, in a sense. It's about enabling us to think differently. There is a power. When I do a, a show and we, the opening night, that power that it has to transform people's lives, to enable them to think differently, it's a sweet feeling, you know, uh, that you have. And when you're kind of making the work and, you you know, it's painful and you're going through struggling and thinking, why am I doing this to myself, you know? Yeah. And then you have that opening night and you see the effect it has on people. You realize that's what I do, what I do. That's yeah. why I do what I do to have that effect on people. Yeah, you're 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 a liberator in many ways. Um, you're helping yeah. to liberate minds. Uh, the power of words. Um, your yeah. own curious exploration of life in the world through words. Your plays. Right. Um, yeah, and equally, um, I'm interested in how that contributes to resilience, your personal resilience, and also reflecting back on what you were saying about, you know, your mum, your sisters, uh, but, but the, you know, the, mm. the, the men in your life as well, your dad, your, you know, your granddad, um, the, the, the courage yeah. that was shown requires a resilience, doesn't it? And I, I noticed that you've also spoken about spiritual strength and spiritual strength as a form of yeah. resistance, which I thought was really interesting. Resistance as a, yeah. as a form of connection in a way. I wondered if you could expand yes. on that for us. Well, res spirituality is a form of resistance and spirituality, make a distinction here to religion. Yeah. Spirituality, and I mentioned earlier about the acknowledging and uh, embracing our ancestors. Yeah. Both my parents are, are gone now, but, you know, they're ever-present in my life. And I, I grew up with my parents, my dad particularly, talking about spirits. And in the in Eastern Caribbean, they call them jumbies. In Jamaica, they call them duppies. In Europe, they probably call them ghosts. But yeah. these are not things to be afraid of. These are not things to because... You know, if my if my if my parents they're gone, if my mom walked in now, I wouldn't be afraid. Yeah, I wouldn't be afraid. She's not a ghost; she's a spirit, and she's come to help me and guide me. 
And so there's this understanding, particularly in the black world, that spirits are, are, are there's a positive energy to that. And then when that connects with resilience, you know, the Windrush generation, my parents' generation, have all, all been seen as quite resilient. Now, that's important. But also, what is the price we pay for resilience? Often it means we are um, suppressing sometimes our own emotions to survive. And so I think when we think about resilience, we must also think about the price that we pay emotionally. Um, because my parents' generation, the Windrush generation, went through trauma. And a lot of their experiences were unspeakable. They, have, they weren't able to speak with them because they just had to survive. My parents never really talked about the racism and the experience because they experienced outside in the world, in the workplace, on the street, arriving here before they had children, because in a sense, they were trying to protect us. They were trying to say, you growing up here, you're born in this country, you're entitled, you have you know, every right as citizens in this country. But I think I, I then wonder what is the price they paid for that resilience in suppressing that those emotions, suppressing that that trauma. So one of the things I'm interested in now is speaking about trauma. The only way you can deal with trauma is to talk about it. You know, it won't go away unless you talk about it because that's part of the healing. And within that, spirituality may be an aid to that. So, you know, it's something I'm quite interested in. Um, and as I get older now, I'm becoming much more aware of that, this importance. I remember doing a residency also working with cancer patients and um, people affected by rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah. And it was interesting that sometimes the working class people, right, yeah. had an interesting outlook on life towards cancer, whereas the middle class people is like, why is this happening to me? Yeah. I've done all of these things. I've achieved all these things. I'm in a privileged position. Why have I got cancer now? Yeah. And there was a sense of anger. Yeah. And in response to disease and illness, one of the things that helps you in your healing is your outlook on life, really. How do you view life? You know, do you see, do you see cancer maybe as just, you know, a negative or another chapter, another challenge in your life that you have to deal with? Yeah, it, it certainly seems. And I think you're referring to the waiting room um, yeah. in terms of this residency, yeah. uh, because I wanted to ask you about that, because it is very interesting what you witnessed in terms of those different expressions of pain and those different reactions, because it seems that perhaps a working class expression perhaps was much more around acceptance um, and right. perhaps a more privileged position was a far greater wrestle with a sense of entitlement. Uh, you know, why me? Yes. I, I'm entitled to be well. Is, is that too broad right. or is, is that what you felt you were tapping no, into? I think there's something in there. There's something in there. I mean, I think... I just I just observed that difference, that dynamic, because you know I worked with a lot of people while in the in on the ward on the hospital world why they were having chemotherapy, for instance, okay, and often just having a conversation with individuals because while they're doing chemotherapy, which takes hours, um, mm. sometimes they'd be on their own, they'd be on they'd have no one there with them, and I so I just went round to different patients and said, can we just talk? And often we wouldn't talk about the disease. We just talk about their lives. 
Um, interestingly, during that time I did that residency, both my parents passed, and I kind of think, what's this? Hold on a minute. Professionally, I'm working in hospitals, and personally, I'm in hospitals. I'm be- am I being told a message here? What's this about? And I had to embrace. I had to kind of come to terms and embrace it in a sense that is this fate? The fact that I'm I'm working with cancer patients and people are ill, and meanwhile my parents are are dying. Um, and so I wrote. I used the, the the waiting room to talk about my own bereavement, my own sense of healing, my own coming to terms and acceptance of their own passing. Um, uh, because during the during the residency, quite a few people I I, I developed relationship with passed away. Interestingly, it wasn't often the people who you think were really ill. It was often the people who seemed to all in ostensibly to be well. They were managing their cancer, mm. and then they went. They passed, and those mm. people who were who were a bit more iller, they survived. Um, mm. It was an interesting experience. It was an interesting experience. And I do remember one cancer patient, a lovely woman, Irish woman, saying disease is about dis-ease. Mm. Dis-ease. You know, dis-ease mm. in your life. Uh, mm. What kind of stresses do you have? There is a correlation between stress, right, and rheumatoid arthritis. A lot yeah. of the flare-ups, a lot of the people I encountered who had rheumatoid arthritis were very angry people. Very angry. Mm. Um and they were very determined people, but also sometimes the things that affected them and their flare-ups when they were trying to do too much often and they were stressed. So there's this connection between, you know, in a sense, your mind and your body and your spirit and your well-being. Yeah. And I firmly believe that. I f- stress can kill you. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like an incredibly intense year that residency to have been sharing trauma going through your own very deep trauma you know considering it's it's your parents uh you were losing um but of course trauma even though fantastically you know you you could use the residency in a way as you were saying that contributed to healing but trauma isn't something that um heals easily or quickly necessarily and of course there's even more awareness now about intergenerational trauma and it's interesting that you're putting more of your own uh, attention on trauma now how are you doing that considering you must have your own trauma sensitivity your own triggers to take care of all of the time that's a really good question. I mean, I think one has to deal with, as an artist, I always say, for instance, with workshops, if I'm asking participants to jump in the pool, metaphorically, to do an exercise, I have to jump in first. So in the practice, I have to go through, explore my own trauma, if I'm going to invite other people to explore their trauma. And one of the themes I've been interested in, in this t- this idea of intergenerational trauma is the question of discipline. It's a theme I've kind of been working on exploring. Discipline is a complex issue, but most people, when they think of discipline, when you say discipline, they think of corporal punishment. So, you know, being smacked when you were younger. And there's a lot of people say, well, you know, I was smacked. I got I got beaten by my parents. It didn't do me any harm. And they, they have this laugh about it. 
Well, I want to question that. And I want to question why is there this preponderance of violence within the black world? Where does that come from? Is that a legacy of slavery? Because we were brutalized and that, you know, violence is in our lives. And not just kind of violence, physical violence, there's also symbolic violence. So I'm interested in how this idea of quest discipline, what does discipline mean? Um, how do we discipline? What's self-discipline? How are we, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a big area, but it's a fascinating area. Is it about being civilized? This idea of respectability, what is that about? Is that a form of discipline? Um, so yeah, I am, I am interested in that. Um, mm-hmm. And also I think at this moment, you know, lot, two weeks ago they had the Windrush Day. Yeah. Um, and some people see it as a celebration. I don't see it as a celebration. I see it as a commemoration. Because mm. in the afterlife of Windrush, people are now of my age are being told that they are illegal immigrants, even though they've been here most of their lives. They are being deported. They are being incarcerated in detention centers. They are forfeiting any health benefits. They're losing their homes. They're losing their jobs. So I don't think there's anything to celebrate. Mm. They were asked to come. Mm. This is the only country they know, Mm. you know? Mm. Um, And this, for me, it's not just about the Windrush generation. It's a wider question of migrants, Mm. of refugees, of asylum seekers, yeah? They have their own trauma. Often people don't realize when you come to a country like here or anywhere, you know, you can't go back home, you know. You have to set, find some way of surviving and you come with nothing. What is it, what is it those, those, those people have? What do they bring? Often they bring a sense of aspiration, which goes back to the front room. They have a sense of a drive to do better, um, for their families, for their children. They're sending money back home, you know, to help their families back home sometimes if they can. Um, this is really a kind of lesson in kind of human, for want of a better word, resilience, really. But yeah. there's a price we pay for that. There's a price we pay for that, you know, along the way. And this is where unpacking and speaking to trauma is really important. Yeah, because when you think... You can live with an identity that your identity alone poses a risk, that it's a target for attack every day. And let's say maybe that was worse in the the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, but nevertheless can continue. It's incredibly depleting. And and it's one of the reasons I'm interested in re-examining what courage is because of course we all tend to think of that as a bit of trumpet blowing or heroics Mm. it's always about life-saving stuff but I'm I'm not interested in the trumpet blowing I'm interested in recognizing that there are many 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 daily acts of courage that those of us who have far greater barriers than other people have to be in possession of. And we need to perhaps recognize that more to afford more self-respect in terms of our well-being. That's right. That's right. The pandemic for me has shown us the human courage. He really shown us human courage. Yeah. How, you know, in a sense, this sense of community, helping each other, being kind to each other, being human to each other, um, 
you know, helping that neighbor that you didn't know, you know, they can't go out, but you bring some food for them and making sure that they're okay, taking care of the, uh, the vulnerable, uh, the older people, the sick. That's really come out. We've really shown that. We, you know, as human beings, we should be proud of what's come out of, you know, perversely, I suppose, from, from the pandemic. And it's something we should build on and not lose. Um, and it's not about going back to the new normal, whatever that is, because I, I think yeah. that normal wasn't one I wasn't happy with anyway. Oh, yeah, I was so going to say, no about, thanks. <laughs> no thanks. Yeah. Leave that behind. <laughs> it's, a new way, it's a new way of being, and I think, and I just want to encourage that. Because we're in a time of a lot of grief, but there's also a lot of grievance. Um, and, um, I don't think the powers that be help it, but, you know, I, I sense that people have just got on with what they have to do to survive. Um, but because COVID has not gone away Mm. and, 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 and so caring with, for each other, uh, for, with each other, by each other is still fundamental. It's still fundamental. Yeah. And that takes courage. That does take courage, human courage. And we've seen so much of that, so much. I'm, yeah. Yeah. And maybe that reflects, again, in terms of uh, what we were saying earlier uh, with Black Lives Matter and and the response to the the brutal murder of George Floyd, the fact that that was something that could be witnessed live, that that shift in visibility, at least it demonstrates there is a unity, there's a common humanity that still wants to be known, you know, whoever you are, there is that that sense of solidarity. And actually, from your point of view... I imagine that's an interesting shift to witness in terms of digital because now history has a chance to express itself live. The truth can be told live and it can be told by anybody. And that's quite an interesting dynamic, isn't it? When you think we have a problem, if you like, currently with museums, you know, many people can say, well, where am I in here? And what's locked away in the archive? And when we mentioned your work earlier with Esther Niles, um, you know, you you put your hand into that archive and you pulled out a woman, a black woman's story, for example. So, yeah, um, yeah, I'm very interested, actually, in, in... that shifting dynamic from your point of view. On one hand, we still need to put our hands inside these archives and pull out stories and let different people respond differently to what these collections possess. But also uh, what you see the gifts are, if you like, from digital in terms of liberating how our history is told. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, that's a really good point, Paula. I mean, in a sense, the whole thing with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter was really only, in a sense, the world acknowledging what people of colour have been experiencing for generations. So it's welcome to the truth, welcome to the reality now, in a sense. This is what's been going on. We've been talking about it for generations, but now you can see it in, on, uh, on a video screen, on a phone. And that is the power of the digital world. You know, there's a lot of disparaging ideas about social media. Yes, because social media is the street um, and you evil exists. But there's a lot of good 
in there as well. And I'm interested in the good and the power that the digital media can provide in kind of um, sharing information that we would not ever uh, be able to access. You know, a lot of younger people, a lot of people now rely on digital media for their access for information and news. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, just as the same before the pre-internet, one has to be use be discerning. One has to use one's own discretion, do your own research, do your own reading. Do not rely on information that all information is just um, neutral. Neutral information is not necessarily neutral. You mm-hmm. have to make your own critical judgments about that. Uh, because we're in we're in a time of so-called post-truth and conspiracy theories. Well, they've always been there. They've always been there. It's just that, in a sense, um, some people have used social media to weaponize that. Okay, mm. that so that's the world we're in now. But at the same time, people have also benefited from the digital world in terms of accessing information, connecting with people globally. That's wonderful. That is amazing. It's it allows a form a form of freedom and democracy, social democracy, and I want to hold on to that those principles in a sense as we move forward, but also understand that um, we should have a healthy relationship with digital media, which is turn off the phone, mm-hmm. turn off the phone occasionally, turn it off uh, because it is a it is. We're in a post-human era. We are connected to machines. We did depend on machines. But to understand that, we need to distance ourselves from machines as well. Yeah? Yeah. Um, we need to switch them off. And in switching them off, we then notice nature. We then notice the details of nature because we're connected to nature. Uh, we, you know, uh, we notice each other. Uh, you know, instead of so on the tube, put down the phone, look at the other person who's next to you on the tube, you know. Yeah. Um, they may be going through some struggles yeah. that you may not be aware of. Yeah. You know, no. So put down the phone because not all the truth comes through, the actual truth comes through real human connection, <laughs> basically. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's a critical point about remembering what openness is, what it looks like, what it feels like, and and that important role of curiosity, you know, to remain open and not just screen gazing and locked into your phone, for example. Exactly. Because, yeah, curiosity brings empathy. Yeah. So, you know, everything we've talked about... um, Obviously, around the role of arts and culture, um, battling obvious barriers and various yeah. forms of discrimination, um, but the role that you know the arts has to play. Um, yeah. I'd also like to pick up on uh, your work around music, and 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 again, of course, this this was instantly significant. Um, with the front room, um, but also since then, um, your work uh, in terms of sonic vibrations, the anthology, and talking about the sound system culture. And I I was really interested in talking to you about that more and in terms of how you were able to to identify equity in the dance space. Yeah. Okay. So um, from the front room, 
the radiogram I mentioned earlier about the significance of the radiogram. That begins the house parties, blues parties, but also sound system. And for me growing up, when I was a teenager, you know, I'd, I'd go out dancing and I'd follow sound systems. And, um, you know, sound systems are really important in terms of the development of British popular music. Um, you know, everything from the, the genres, with music genres, drill, grime, drum and bass, garage, all of those genres. But they all come out of black music. And the uh, African-American philosopher said that one of the, hu- the things that has been given to humanity is black is music, because music is a universal language. And black music has emerged out of a, a background of catastrophe, racial catastrophe, yeah, to mm. create something that is soothing, that is sweet and gives emo- that gives freedom. Mm. And I wanted to embrace that in, in some of the work. So we did an exhibition called Rockers, Soulheads and Lovers about sound systems back in the day, the analog sound systems. Um, but it tends to be a quite male, patriarchal space of, of boys with toys. And when we did Sonic Vibrations, that I was invited by Writers Mosaic, and it's a really great website that people, listeners should visit. And it's an initiative led by Writers of Colour. It's connected to the Royal Literary Fund. So I was invited to create a, an online multimedia anthology. And um, so a lot of people are invited to be part of that um, that work, artists, writers, people in the sound artists. But interestingly, a lot of women, um, because there are women sound system, mm. women sound systems. In fact, at my 50th uh, birthday party, it was a woman sound system. There's something interesting that women bring in play in music. They kind of tend to more play for the people. Well, sometimes. A DJ for me should play for the people not play for themselves. I don't know if you've ever been to a club or a dance and the DJ's just playing, it's like boring. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, I, I, but uh, so I've deliberately, consciously brought in women um, sound systems, but also there was a conversation that we recorded of some five black women talking about their experience of the dance hall. Because the dance hall can be a quite patriarchal space where, particularly in reggae, women are often waiting to be asked to dance for a dance. There's a notion of women should be dressed in a particular way when they go out to dance. Yeah. And in a sense, that's quite patriarchal in a sense. And we think of different music genres. Reggae, yeah, can be quite liberating, but people may feel that soul and funk could be a bit more free. So we're exploring that. We're exploring also some of the reggae tunes. There's a, there's a classic reggae tune by Susan Duggan called Hurt So Good. When you begin to unpack the lyrics, Hurt So Good, what does that mean, Hurt So Good? You know, is it is it a, a relationship breakup? It hurts so good to be abused? You know, there's a kind of sense of pain and pleasure. There's a pleasure because you could read Hurt So Good from a sexual point of view, but you could read Hurt So Good from an emotional point of view as well. And so we were interested in exploring those kind of themes, curious about what does that song, what does that tune mean, in a sense, if we read it? What is it a metaphor for? And, and, and then we had dub poets who were part of the anthology. Uh, one of the late great dub poets, uh, Jean Bin Tabriz from Jamaica, um, I think, 
I spoke to her a few months before she passed away, and she, you know, she agreed to involve one of include one of her classic poems, um, "Rhythm Ravens," or what's also called a Mad Woman poem. And she talks about this a woman in her po- in her particular poem who has mental health problems, and she has this radio in her head, and she's sent in, she's sectioned, you know, and sent into a mental home. But it's a wonderful, powerful piece. So I'm quite proud of some, it was quite big. It's in two parts on Writer's Mosaic, you know, but I, I invite people to visit it because, and take your time in reading and listening to some of the interviews that we did uh, as part of the anthology. And it's also bringing this idea of that this, the importance of music and black music, because in the 20th century, the first recordings on the gramophone were of black voices. And what you find is that as music develops through the 20th century, it is so, you know, in the 70s, we have the emergence of computer technology. It was really people like Stevie Wonder, um, Lee Scratch Perry, who are pushing the limits of what the machine can do in terms of sound technology that create the genres that we are benefiting from now. So music is always about innovation pushing the limits of what the machine can do, pushing that dial. It says you shouldn't go into the red. Well, actually push it into the red and see what cre- is, emerges. Um, and that's the same now. So I'm thinking of like artists like Kendrick Lamar, who was at Gluston- Glastonbury. Um, he's more than a rapper. He's a poet, you know? Yeah. There's some. I mean, I don't know if it was on BBC the other day with Kendrick Lamar and his new album called Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers which was created under the pandemic. Mm. Um, and in it, what's wonderful in this piece he's creating, he's really facing his own fears. He's being curious about what is life now like? Um, it's a complex, layered, sophisticated um, body of work. And when we think of hip-hop, it's important to remember that hip-hop is not all about kind of, you know, um, bling, guns, gun violence, misogyny that's a commercial aspect of hip-hop you know other aspects of hip-hop are much more thoughtful much more interested in the politics much more interested in addressing justice and difference and so forth you know? yeah yeah so yeah i'm I, I always play music i always love to dance um i'm a raver i born a, i've always been a raver once a raver always a raver <laughs> <laughs> i love it i love it uh, well, music and dance seems to always uh, be one of the most successful spaces in many ways to bring people together. And and it's really interesting what you yeah. were mentioning about uh, hip hop and, again, the stereotypes that go with that. And I'll, I'll just quickly mention Otis Mensah, who I interviewed in season one, uh, the UK's first hip hop poet laureate, uh, yeah. mixed, mixed race, uh, young guy in the city of Sheffield, uh, yeah. who who very bravely challenges all of the stereotypes of masculinity and black masculinity yep. and writes the most beautiful emotional hip-hop poetry and smashes all of those those myths. Yeah, that's right. And we're, is a, there is a, we're in a time of a turn in hip-hop now because you have people, artists like Billy Porter, you know, who are, you know, who are pushing the ideas of gender, who are questioning masculinity um, within hip-hop, because it's often been seen as a kind of hyper-masculine space 
and you know women's presence are only dear as guests but the women are women hip-hop artists from Miss Ed, Little Kim you know even Rihanna are fierce even Beyonce are fierce you know they're strong women um and so it's wonderful now that you know that gender is being quite a questioned other ideas of of gender and it actually raising the question is gender irrelevant is gender relevant Mm. really in a sense mm. is it that mm. relevant mm. we seem to be defined by gender and wedded to gender but is it that relevant and that's what kind of transgendered kind of identities are enabling us to see that there has always been a third gender it's always been there it's part of human history it's not new mm. um and when we also think about rap rap is an ancient practice that goes back to the oral tradition that comes from africa so rap is no different to, you know, toasting or emceeing in reggae, you know, it's poetry. Mm. So, yeah, it's poetry. And it, it's, you could say it's performance poetry or it's all tradition. It, it's very similar. Um, so it's wonderful. It's wonderful yeah. to, to see these new emerging artists creating new work and using the form, pushing the form, developing the form. Um, because music should never stay static. It should always develop, innovate. And, and artists be curious about, you know, well, okay, let's bring this different sound here into this now. What does that do? And, and artists like Kendrick Lamar are doing that for me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and it's entirely what, what you, you said earlier in the interview, you know, the, the critical role the arts has in terms of development and that value is actually incalculable. I can't uh, thank you enough, Michael, for giving me so much time today. I'm very aware um, we've probably run over and I'm very aware that I've still got 100 questions. <laughs> so I don't want to... Don't want to... <laughs> become unreasonable if you have any questions just ask i'm fine i'm cool i'm cool well if if you really don't mind on on the music um subject um something else i'll 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 quickly explore uh, because i am really stealing your time but i was i was lucky and and privileged enough to have worked on some music series where yeah. I was able to go to America and interview um, lots of jazz and blues, typically black musicians, yeah. including legends. I mean, it's. I mean, I almost can't believe I'm saying it, but people like Ray Charles and Curtis Mayfield yeah. and Isaac yeah. Hayes. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. and oh, of wow. course, it's endlessly mind blowing that these are people that succeed not just against all the odds, but against all the odds imaginable. And I've often thought, um, you know, how how vital their stories are. And and I've also always wished I'd had the chance to talk to Sammy Davis Jr. And that's because, I mean, I don't know if you've ever read his autobiography, but... um, it's 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 just too astounding for words because by page six it was the same as reading a rape account because Sammy was put in one of the first integrated military 
camps or, or whatever the term is. Um, but it meant he was the only black soldier and the, the racism he suffered is indescribable uh, and it's too horrible to even talk about. Um, but of course, yeah. it was his musicianship, his talent, his performance that mobilised yeah. and rescued his survival in many ways. And then interestingly, yeah. white men, you know, Frank Sinatra or uh, Mediterranean, as in Dean Martin, you know, his his Italian roots, you know, th- they were very enabling in terms of refusing to play to segregated audiences and insisting that Sammy Davis Jr. was yeah. on stage with them. And all of that is massively interesting. But I often wish yeah. um, I'd, I'd had the privilege to talk to Sammy Davis Jr. about his experience. I mean, there, I don't know if you know this, but there were even race riots because he married a blonde, white Swedish woman. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know? <laughs> so yeah. the, the yeah. reason I wanted to share all of that is because the way you're able to include music in your work and almost remind people in fact what you were saying earlier the importance of remembering you know whether it's um the ancestral relationship with music or or just generational your parents or the front room you know the the importance of reclaiming that space as a music space because outside you were still being segregated um it's a huge huge area and I was just really interested in how starkly you see those barriers now um, or how happily shifting, if you like, you see those barriers now through, through music. That's a really interesting question. I mean, you know, figures like Sammy Davis Jr., Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, the whole the list can go on. It comes back to this question that the music they created comes out of pain. You know, blues comes out of pain. But then in doing that, you create something beautiful. And throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century, the relationship between white music and black music is in, integrated. It's intrinsic. Um, so you think of Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley was made popular in America at a time when white America did not want girls having orgasms over a black man like Little Richard, because it's Little Richard who preceded Elvis Presley. A lot of the tunes that you know Elvis Presley kind of created are white versions of black music. That still goes on. That is still going on. There's whole issues now on TikTok around the kind of, uh, a cultural appropriation of black music and black dance that is still going on it's even it's even more intensified now um and so what do artists and and um akala who wrote natives is really great on this because you know we think of pink floyd pink floyd is a mixture is is two words two jazz artists pink and floyd from the 1920s okay um you know, I could go on. I could go on. I could go on. But what I, I think the key thing is that black music artists are always pushing the the, the 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 limit. So we think of the way that grime and drill has been stereotyped in the in the media. 
Well, that's no different to the way that hip hop was stereotyped, you know, and demonized during the 1980s or reggae. Um, the, the status quo is always threatened by music that is going to be critical, that is going to question. And, this, and, and music is political, period. You think of Bob Dylan and the stuff he was, it's political. The protest songs during the 1960s, Nina Simone, Bob Dylan and the like. It's political um, in the 80s and the 70s. So music is always questioning justice, question raising issues of, of so That's what artists do. That's what artists do. Beyonce has been doing that. Um, um, but to push, to always develop new sounds, new ideas. I remember Stormzy, um, I was at Glastonbury a couple of years ago, and Stormzy's just risen, you know, with his tune. And But on stage, he was on stage with a bulletproof vest covered in a Union Jack. Now, that's a very powerful symbol. Wow. That's a very powerful symbol that he's sending out there. Wow. Uh, and, and this is where artists, I think music artists, um, can make us think, can make us through their music, but also through their symbolism, um, begin to question the status quo and and challenge and speak to power and challenge oppression. One of the key artists in that is Bob Marley. Yeah. And why Bob Marley is loved across the world, because people, when they listen to this music, they know he's speaking to them. He's speaking to the downtrodden. He's speaking to the, the oppressed. And he's saying to them, you can have liberation. There is freedom. Okay, you can resist oppression because wherever there's oppression, there has always been resistance. That is a fact of history. Wherever there is power and oppression, there always been resistance. And musicians and artists and writers are the ones who give voice to that. And that's what Bob Marley does. That's what. That's why you can go everywhere in the world: Africa, East Asia, India, South America. Bob Marley is celebrated because he spoke for the people. People sense that in his music. He was speaking to them about yeah. their lives being oppressed and, and so forth. You yeah, know? yeah. That's the power. That's the power it has. That's yeah. the power it has. Um, yeah. And so you were really lucky in being interviewed his people, you know. Oh, it's astounding. You were really lucky, you know, when you just hear the names. Yeah, those, those moments in history that, you know, you can't believe are happening. And luckily, I was also able to do those interviews from a social history point of view. You know, it wasn't, oh, what's the latest album kind of stuff. And what a privilege, what an utter, utter privilege. Yeah. But it, it's that, it's everything you're saying, you know, the, 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 the power, the dismantling of barriers, yeah. the survival against all the odds. But the celebration that we need to wrap around all of this as well in terms of hanging on to that sense of optimism and hope for positive change because they did succeed against all the odds. And not I don't mean success just in terms of commercial success, but in terms of their battles for equality and their voices for everybody else, creating change right. for everybody else. So that's right. I mean, that's a really important point. I just wanted to add to that. Akala would say, why aren't more black artists speaking out about the racism in the music industry? 
Well, one of the issues that he says is that they're afraid. They're afraid of the effect on their careers and the, the lashback the, you know, about, about them. And I, I just wanted to say here that uh, artists, yeah, we have fears, but we actually have to speak out um, because at the end of the day, all we have is our integrity. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah. and that's how you will be remembered. That's how you will be remembered. You won't be remembered by the commercial success. Yeah. You will be remembered by what the music that you created and does it speak to subsequent generations? Does it kind of say things or speak to things or, you know, uh, empower that sense of liberation and freedom in subsequent generations? It's not about how much money you made one while you were alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, completely. You know, so you think of the legacy of, you know, of, of all the artists you mentioned. It's not about the, their commercial successes. Does their music speak to people now? Yeah. Does it speak to them now? Does it rate resonate with me? That's that's the legacy you leave. Yeah. Really, as an artist. Yeah, and I think you're legacy or at least one of them uh, certainly something I'd like to thank you for is the openness that you're creating whether it's literally opening a door onto a front room or the openness that you create through your plays your writing through visiting music I think openness uh, and also as a form of curiosity it is really vital and I really want to thank you for that and I want to thank you for joining me in a in a virtual front room if you like not not as exciting <laughs> as, as a West Indian front room <laughs> um, and I'd also like to offer a shout out actually because when I was doing my research I also came across a podcast you did with DJ Flight and so for the listeners I'd really like to do a shout out for DJ Flight. Head yeah. to the windrushstories.com where you'll find the associated podcast with DJ Flight. And that's uh, one of the only flights you can take at the moment with the current strikes. <laughs> so uh, so do look out for that. Michael, thank you so much. Um, uh, uh, you really are a great and, and inspiring educator. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paula. Hey, take it easy. Until until <laughs> all right all right